Welcome to Testing Code, a podcast about software development and software testing. There are a lot of learning styles and a lot of ways to learn Python. If you started Python through a class at work or through an online course or maybe an email series, it's possible you may have learned from Reuven Lerner. If your first encounter with PyTest was reading an article on Linux Journal recently, that would be the writing of Reuven. Reuven Lerner teaches Python, and we get to talk to him today. This interview definitely falls into the category of talking with interesting people doing interesting things with Python. We talk about how incorporating testing into teaching can add a level of clarity to the interaction and help people during the learning process. I'm also fascinated by people who teach and train, and especially teaching and training Python, because teaching and training is a skill I'm trying to improve. Thank you to PyCharm for sponsoring this episode. Check them out at testandcode.com slash PyCharm and listen to their segment later in the show. This is the Testing Code Podcast, and I have today, and I should have made sure I understood your name beforehand. It's uh, Reuven Lerner, is that right? Perfect, absolutely. Okay, well, Reuven and I ran into each other at like the hotel bar in uh, in Ohio at the last PyCon. It's the first time I met him. But instead of introducing him, I think I'll ask you, uh, Reuven, will you introduce yourself? Sure, sure. My pleasure, Brian. So I've been using Python for a long time, uh, interspersed with some other languages as well. I've been using it since, I think, about 92, 93. And I've been a self-employed consultant since 95, also using like various high-level languages in various degrees. And about... 10 years ago, I decided to really focus my consulting work on training, and most of that training on Python. So you can say for about 10 years now, I've been a full-time Python trainer, going to different companies, cities, countries. I've taught in North America, Europe, Israel, where I live, and in China, giving my various Python courses. And I also do a bunch of writing. I have some online courses that I do of various sorts. I guess we'll talk about that a bit as well. I write for Linux Journal. I have some email lists. So, uh, yeah, but a lot of, I would say most of my work lately has involved some form or another of teaching Python, getting it out to people, helping them advance their skills. Remind me again what you did before 96? When I graduated from college, I worked for HP for about two years, two and a half years. And I was all set to move to Israel. And I got a phone call from a college friend of mine saying, hey, Time Warner needs web developers. Would you like to do this? So this was in early 95, late 94 and early 95. And I mean, I'd set up one of the first websites back when I was an undergrad at MIT. So this was a college friend of mine. I was like, no, 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 I'm all set. I'm moving to Israel. He said, listen, you should talk to these people. So I talked to them. I was like, oh, this is super cool. So I worked for them for about nine months on site at Time Warner in New York. And then I came to Israel, set up my consulting company, and continued working with them for about four years. They were sort of my, my first consulting client. And that sort of allowed me to then scaffold up my consulting, working with a bunch of companies, both in Israel and the U.S., doing, I would say, some combination of programming, web development, Linux stuff. And over time, more and more places asked me not just to do the development for them, but teach their developers how to do what I did. So that was sort of the the wedge that started the whole training thing for me. Okay. And since you're, as a consulting role, you're... Jumping around to various companies every once in a while, 
that kind of turned into a training role fairly easily for you then? So what happened was I was doing all these different things. I was doing some consulting, some development, some training in various mixtures. And then we went to Chicago for four years uh, where I started grad school. And when we came back to Israel, uh, I was still working on my PhD, and I ran into someone. Actually, literally, he almost ran into me with his car. <laughs> and after nearly hitting me and apologizing, realizing that he knew me instead of cursing me out or vice versa, he said, hey, you should talk to – if you're interested in doing more training, I know a training company that can market you to various companies here. I was like, hmm, I'm working on my dissertation. I could really use that marketing help. Yeah. So I talked to the training company, and it started off being like oh, – well, I sent them my resume – and I said, well, I'm interested in doing Ruby training. That was like the main thing I was doing. And they called me back. And they said, that's great, except there's desperate need for Python training. And it says here, you know, Python, how much do you want to work? <laughs> so I was like, I'm in. <laughs> so it started off being like one week a month and then meant to two weeks a month. And at a certain point after like three or four years with this training company, I was scheduled out almost fully booked about three, four months in advance. Wow. And then I finished the PhD and I called them up. I said, guess what, guys, I'm going back to doing this on my own. And then I just sort of continued. Some of the companies that I had been training for through this training company continued with me, and then others started calling me as well. So it's probably been about 10 years now that most of my, like probably 16, 20 days a month, I'm teaching full days, you know, intro Python, advanced Python, data science, regex, and so forth. Nice. You did mention that you write for Linux Journal. And the funny thing is I found this out because of your PyTest article that you wrote there. And I didn't know before that that my boss was a subscriber to this magazine. And he has been since it was like a physical magazine. And uh, he came over to my cubicle and pulled up his phone and said, look at this article. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. And he said, no, no, look at the bottom. It plugs your book. And I'm like, wow, that's really cool. <laughs> so, um, yeah, thanks for that, and uh, thanks for impressing my boss. That was, a, that was a good day. My pleasure. What happened there, just like, it's like one of these funny sort of stories. So I used to edit the Emacs FAQ way back in the day. And so... The company that used to publish Linux Journal many, like, I don't know, iterations ago made most of their money doing reference cards, like those physical fold-out cards. So they emailed me one day and said, hi, since you're the Emacs FAQ editor, would you mind looking over our Emacs card and double-checking that it's good, and we'll pay you in 10 things from our catalog, whatever you want. So I chose a bunch of things from the catalog, including, Linux, including yeah, Linux Journal. And they had an ad in the back saying, coming soon, WebSpith magazine, all about web development. And I was like, the web is going to be new and it's going to be big. And, and you know what? I think they're right. It is going to be big. <laughs> so basically, I wrote to them and said, hey, I see you're doing this new web magazine. Would you be interested in having a columnist talk about development for web stuff? And they were like, sure. So basically, I wrote for that magazine for about four or five months, and then it died. <laughs> and they just silently folded my column into Linux Journal. And so I've been writing for them just about every month since 96. Wow. And they are super, super nice in every way, including basically giving me carte blanche to write whatever I want. So I basically choose the topic that I've been most enchanted by, interested in, and or want to learn about, and that someone's willing to pay me a bit to spend some time learning about. And over the last few months, I've been like getting into PyTest and being impressed by it. I was like, darn it. I should write about this. So I got three columns out of the deal. So it's, it's good for both of us, me, you, and, and your boss, I guess. Oh, that's cool. So one of the things, we could BS for a long time, but the um, 
one of the things you reached out to me for to come on the show is you said that you, yeah, falling in love with PyTest or maybe just testing, that it has changed and improved the way you teach. And I'd like to ask about that. I have yet to incorporate testing. Well, let me back up a little bit. So I've known sort of intellectually for a long time that testing is the right thing to do, right? Like it's, it's very hard to argue that testing is bad. And I've often told clients, look, we should do testing on these various things. And I think I just had a lot of cheapskate clients over the years because they've been like, no, 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 we don't want to spend the time on that. Don't worry about it. And I've sometimes managed to convince that the testing was good, but not always. And so I was always like, like I said, intellectually in favor of testing, but it was never sort of fully grown emotionally inside of me. And it wasn't a natural part of my development necessarily. I, I think part of that was because I never found a library that sort of flowed naturally with the development that I was doing. It always felt a little stilted or sort of like the, the latest uh, sort of like cucumber type stuff where it f- looks super great at first. And <laughs> after you're in it, and you're like, oh my God, this seemed great. What happened? Like, like, like what? <laughs> And I had also been asked by some of my clients about testing for a while. So I haven't really incorporated into any of my courses in person. Where it really struck home, though, was I've got an online course called Weekly Python Exercise, which you'll be surprised to hear is a weekly Python exercise. (laughs) (laughs) Every Tuesday, people get an exercise, and the following Monday, they get the solution. And in between, there's a forum where people can discuss it with each other. And it's been through a few different iterations. I'm starting up, I think, the fourth or fifth cohort we're recording this in early January, so later this month, and then it's going to be a new one like for beginners. And so I'm basically going to every two months now open up new shorter cohorts. It used to be a year long, it's going to be shorter. And like it's to challenge people and get them to expand and learn both through problem solving and through collaboration. And the one of the biggest pushbacks I got from people in the first cohort to two cohorts was, where are the tests? Because I'm presenting them with a problem Every Tuesday, they get emails saying, here's the problem. And I would describe it. And even if my description was fantastic, and it sometimes wasn't, it wasn't specific. It wasn't precise. It wasn't something they could test to. And so the combination of them complaining and me then discovering PyTest was like a match made in heaven. Basically, I was like, okay, this is great. I can now easily write tests, describe what I want to do. It'll force me to improve my code and improve my testing they will see examples of testing which will improve their coding and this way I don't have to like give away the store I can just give them the tests and when their tests pass they know that they've done it correctly and this has been a sea change in I think my ability to, to teach in their ability to get things the interactions between me and the students have also gotten better because now they can push back and say hey the following tests are really lousy and the following tests were really great it helped me to understand where I failed to get things right oh yeah I feel like Moving forward, I'm going to try to incorporate this into more and more of my courses as well. Yeah, that's great. I've talked to multiple people that have had uh, like a sort of a of adding testing to this sort of thing and finding that they it improves the descriptions because once if you have to if you have to write a test for it, you realize that sometimes maybe the um, requirements sometimes conflict with themselves. I don't know if that yes. ever happened for you, but I mean, I found all sorts of weird things. I mean, whether it's so I had something, uh, just recently I had an exercise in which I had people create a new version of integer that when you compared it, it would sort of loosely say things were equal. So if you set the threshold to be five, then two and four are equal also, because you know two plus four is within that threshold. And so <laughs> that's a sort of fun exercise that I have people do, because they're so, so useful. Actually, some of them, some of them are really, some of, the, most of them are trying to prove a point. 
And so I had a whole bunch of tests in there that were all the different mathematical operations you can do, at least the, like the basic ones. And so a bunch of people like discovered, oh, my implementation doesn't work because I didn't handle all these different cases. Yeah. So that was great like for them to discover. And I discovered in doing that same one that I failed to take into account, like uh, you can do in both directions. I need to take absolute value. So certainly it has forced me to check and double check my code and improve it. And sometimes it's also the structure. Like sometimes in the past, I would set up an exercise where they just need to have like a simple infinite loop where they were getting in input from the user again and again and again, calculating something, summing something, and then they break out of the loop and they'd sort of you know, get the result. And you can't test that very easily. So I've had to restructure some of those exercises such that it's write a function that does this or write a few functions that work together to do this. Yeah. And that's quite frankly, more realistic software. Like how many of us are writing programs that the beginning line is while true? Hopefully not too many, <laughs> unless we're paid by the hour. Right? You said that there's a, a forum or something that people interact with um, each other? Yes. So from the beginning, like when I was putting together a weekly Python exercise, I was trying to think, okay, I mean, like my, my PhD is in uh, learning sciences, like an education sort of thing. So I'm always trying to think, okay, how much of like educational theory can I sort of leverage to maximize the learning people will get. And so solving problems on your own is great, but solving problems with other people is even better. Both because people can help each other. I had this pipe dream that people would pair program with each other to solve problems. That's not happening. But they are probably just like time zone issues and partly because maybe the cohorts are too small still. But definitely people say, I'm having problems with this, or I didn't understand what was necessary here, or I didn't understand the solution. And so there's a discourse forum, and I specifically chose discourse rather than Slack, so that answers would stick around and people would need to be there in real time. And that has been fantastic. A small number of people actually use it. I'd say it's like 20%, 30% of the participants. But those who do really seem to value it, they can call me out and say, hey, what do you think of this? Or what did you mean by that? I see the forum as a really important part of the, the learning process that I'm offering people in the courses as well. So you said you, you use Discourse. How does that work? Mm -hmm. do, you have, do you have like a particular like a, a web page for each problem or something that, that you attach a Discourse thread to? Or <laughs> So well, yeah, it's one of these things that sort of evolved. So I rented a, a server from well, the DiscourseHosting.net, I think they're called. And it's not that much money. It's like, I don't know, $20, $30 a month, something along those lines. And so what I do is I put people in each cohort in a group for security purposes, and then I make a new topic for each exercise. So in the year-long version of weekly Python exercise, you have like you know exercise one through fifty-two, and then then it would say basically, hey, discuss this week's exercise here, and then I would just restrict it to be who's in what cohort. Um, originally, I just sort of hid in the URLs, thinking, well, I won't have more than one cohort. Well, let's see if this thing actually takes off. And now that it's taken off, I realized, okay, I need to structure a little differently. So people, in theory, when they log in, only see messages for the cohorts that are appropriate for them okay. and don't have access for the others, which actually seems to work pretty well. Okay, interesting. Cool. This episode is sponsored by PyCharm. I've told you about how my team has switched to PyCharm to speed up our workflow. I've talked about the Git integration, PyTest support, Vim emulation, and more. But I also want to explore a few more ways PyCharm saves time. And today it's virtual environments. Let's say I've got a newly cloned project or a new directory or a package I'm starting to work on with no current virtual environment. I just open the directory in PyCharm, go to the preferences and select project interpreter. There's a little gear icon there 
and that has a drop down with the add button. The default is already set up to create a new virtual environment right in my directory called venv. And then it lets me select which Python, which installed Python to use, which of course for me right now, it's either Python 3.6 or 3.7. This explanation actually just took way longer to explain than to just do it. It's like three clicks and you're done. It's setup matches my workflow, but it may not match yours. There's also options there for conda environments or just using the system interpreter or using pipenv, even vagrant Docker and Docker Compose. It's very cool. So virtual environment support saves me time and my team time, helps us work consistently with good practices. Next time, I'll share some other fun time savers. If you value your time, you owe it to yourself to try PyCharm. And just for testing code listeners, you can try PyCharm Pro for an extended four-month trial. This offer is good until April 1st, but don't wait. Save time right now with PyCharm. I should have asked this before, but you live in an interesting place. You live in Modine? How do you pronounce that? Modine. It's like a double double I sound. Between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. I looked this up this morning and I went, wow, you're definitely in a different time zone than me. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I don't really have any questions about that other than that seems cool. Do you have to, uh, I don't know how big Modi'in is, but do you travel to either Tel Aviv or Jerusalem on a regular basis? Modi'in, um, when it was, so it was established about, we, we moved here 20 years ago, or I guess 19 years ago when we got married. And at that point, there were about 10,000 people living here. And it was touted as Israel's city of the future. And they like put fiber optic cables to all the homes and everything until they discovered that it was incompatible with the fiber optic cables that the phone company wanted to use. You know, all these great things that <laughs> we get to experience in the future. And it was originally slated to be like eventually Israel's fourth largest city and they were going to have lots of high tech and all sorts of other stuff. It's basically become, and now it's about 100,000 people. So it really has grown quite a lot. They're building schools all the time and roads all the time, buildings all the time. But it's basically a bedroom community. The few businesses that are here are basically logistics warehouses and restaurants and clothing stores. So for any sort of serious business, you go to either Jerusalem or Tel Aviv, mostly in the Tel Aviv direction, quite frankly, although Jerusalem is more and more high tech. And it's about a half hour, 40 minute drive in either direction. Although I tend to take the train most days to, to Tel Aviv for going there. Okay. We happen to like luck out in the house that we bought is a 10 minute walk from the city's train station. Nice. Yeah, it actually worked out very, very well on that front. Is a lot of your in-person training done in one of those cities? I would say most, most of the training I do here is in, I did a ton in Jerusalem for many years. That's petered off a little bit because that client's not doing so great. But so now it's like, you know, Tel Aviv, Herzliya, which is the city north of Tel Aviv, Farsaba, which is a little north of there. But like I sort of go west and then north, and how far north depends on the client, and depends on the day. So you have the uh, the email list with the cohort stuff. You also do online, you have like some on, pre-canned online courses, right? I was actually adamantly against that for a long time. And I, I even have a blog post somewhere saying, I will never do online recorded courses. Probably should like retract that or update that one of these days. <laughs> so I want to be like a total hypocrite. And I'm going to do live courses because live courses are the best because then I can talk to people, I can interact, they can ask questions. And so I guess it was in like the summer of 2017, fall of 2017, I did a few live courses that I advertised to my list and elsewhere. And a handful of people showed up and they seemed to like it a lot. And then I asked my list, like my mailing list, so what time zone would be best for you to do these courses? Because after all, like I'd like to have more people sign up. 
And at the very last moment before I posted the survey, I added another option, which was, I don't want live courses. I want recorded courses. 80% of the people said they wanted recorded courses. So, you know, you can't force the market to do what you want. And I totally understand because time zone differences and I want to be able to pause it also and like, you know, go make dinner or whatever it is. So I've been taking a growing number of my courses and recording them and putting them online. I now I think about six or seven of them. I mean, it's a bit of a patchwork of different topics from the courses I currently teach. And I'm hoping in the next year or two to really get a fuller suite of them. The very beginning of my intro course, which talks about data structures and basic Python syntax, I went on object or like simple objects, basic objects. I won on uh, comprehensions. And then I have like, in addition to the weekly Python exercise email based course, I have two books that I published, uh, one on Python exercises and one of regular expression exercises. And then there's sort of like video courses that go along with those where I go through and solve those as well. Very cool. Yeah, yeah, it's actually, it's, it's, it's fun. And the video recording has been increasingly uh, straightforward and easy for me to do and fun. And it's nice, like, the other fact is, sort of, the bad news with the training is, like, I can only be in one place at one time. And so this way, even people who are in countries I can't get to or I don't have the time to get to or just individuals, right, I can, I can manage to get, train them and um, they can get some benefit even if their you know, company doesn't have a training budget or I don't have the time. So yeah, so it's, it's pretty great. For the online courses, do you set it up as a, in cohorts also, or is it um, just a whenever anybody wants to take it? That, that's whenever. That, I, I toyed with the idea of having like a Slack channel or having a discourse forum for people who are in the course. And it, it wouldn't cost me anything or be that difficult to set up. There just hasn't been, no one's really been clamoring for that. I mean, I might be able to do that. I might do that. It's not a bad idea, just because why not? And maybe people will see this as extra value. But no, so far, like for those courses, you get it. And if you have questions, like sometimes people email me. Okay. And sometimes they email with them back. No, no, I like, I, I'm a little backed up on email in general, as, as are many of us. But like, I actually enjoy getting the feedback from people and hearing from them and uh, sometimes update things accordingly. I still get email for my book and for the PyTest book, and people ask questions or ask for clarification on things. The interesting thing is occasionally somebody will add at the beginning, I know you probably get a ton of email, but actually I don't. I get like maybe one or two a week at most. I really don't get a lot of uh, feedback email. I don't know if it's uh, it's that people just aren't asking questions or maybe my spam filter is too. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, I welcome people getting in touch with me and asking questions. It's great. Actually, you're doing a whole... We haven't told people where to go. If people are interested in what you're doing, where where should they go look for this stuff? So my online store with all the courses is at store.learner.co.il, and that's learner, L-E-R-N-E-R, dot C-O.il. The blessing and curse is that sometimes people think it's learner, L-E-A-R, but no, no, it's like you know, L-E-R-N-E-R. My website, which has like sort of links to all this stuff, Including the story is that just learner.co.il, L-E-R-N-E-R.co.il. Okay, um, we'll put those links in the show notes, of course. What's in the future for you? Where what do you think you're going to be doing more of in 2019 and beyond? The fact is, I love training. I feel like I've got just like the best job ever because every day I get to meet super cool, smart. Well, I mean, you know, all programmers are cool, <laughs> or so I try to tell my children. Uh, <laughs> so I meet you know cool and very smart people in different companies. I hear how they're using Python and programming in different ways. From their questions, I'm always learning new stuff as well. Easily 60% of what I teach is based on what people have taught me or asked me about. So I'm definitely going to keep doing the in-person training. What I'm hoping to do is crank up the online training a bit more 
so that I can be a little more selective in terms of time and place with the in-person training. So that like instead of maybe training in person four weeks a month, maybe I'll do it like three weeks a month or two weeks a month and balance that out with more courses online. So I want to complete my intro course online. I want to get out like my intro data science course online, at the very least the NumPy and Pandas part. And if I can do like my intro scikit-learn stuff, I think that would be interesting and fun and popular. I mean, my experience with a data science course, I always tell people this, it's like a four-day course, two days of NumPy and Pandas, and two days of scikit-learn. I say the first two days are a lot of syntax and a little more boring, but that's what you're actually going to use in your work. And the second two days of scikit-learn, super cool ideas, but most people who at least pass through my classes aren't actually going to use it. So we'll see what, what the demand is for uh, and, and what people are interested in. And then um, I actually am thinking very seriously about putting together a PyTest course, just because, boy, I, I'm so in love with this framework, and I sense that a lot of other people enjoy it also and want to get to know it better. Yeah, no, I think it's a good idea. And we'll see. And we'll see. I'll, I'll say the other thing is the weekly Python exercise stuff I, I hope is going to take off even more and is going to take up more of my time. I mean, what I would love to do is do like a new cohort every month or two even, sort of alternating beginning intermediate and I'm breaking that down to the smaller bits. Instead of one year-long course, it'll be I'm breaking that into three 15-week courses. And so then I can do like, we divide the exercise 101, 201, 102, 202, sort of alternating beginning intermediate. And I'm even toying with the idea of doing it for other technologies and other languages or recruiting other people to do that. So like I know PostgreSQL pretty well. I might do something for that. Well, we'll see. Lots of ideas that I've just got to sort of uh, plod through the things I've already committed to. For trying those, that's great. It sounds interesting, and I'll, I'll definitely keep in touch with the, with you and keep up with what you're up to. Excited to see where all this goes. I uh, really enjoyed talking with you. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to hit on before we sign off? I'll just mention also, like, if people are interested in training, if they find it interesting, intriguing, want to hear more about it, so we'll put this in the show notes also, but I also have a newsletter for people. I mean, in addition to like my programming newsletter, I have a training newsletter for people interested in what I call the business pedagogy and logistics of training. And I'm even hoping to put up a podcast about that in the near future. I've recorded a few episodes, just need to upload them. But if you go to trainerweekly.com, you can sign up for my trainer newsletter. And I give hints about sort of how to get clients, how to price things, how to teach, how to come up with a syllabus, how to make yourself seem like a real professional trainer, and the trade-offs of working on your own versus a training company going through them. So I love helping people get into training. As I said, I think it's like the best thing I've ever done for my career. And so uh, if people are interested in that, happy to talk to them about that or just uh, you know spam you with my newsletter every week. Okay, cool. Thanks a ton for um, talking with me, and i probably talk to you again. My pleasure, Ryan. Thanks for inviting me on. Thanks again to PyCharm for sponsoring the show. Remember to try out PyCharm Pro for four months before picking a license by going to testandcode.com slash PyCharm. That link is also in the show notes at testandcode.com slash 62. Also in the show notes are the links we discussed in the show, and Reuven is doing something cool. If you are interested in his weekly email exercises, He's giving listeners a 10% discount with the link in the show notes. Thanks, Reuven, for doing that. And also, thanks for talking with me. Thank you also to Patreon supporters. There are currently 56 patrons and 7 at the $5 level. That's awesome. Big round of applause to new patrons Chris Frazier and Michael Harp, as well as longtime supporters Steve Holden, Oliver Bestwalter, Andrew Diedrich, Jordan Rink, and Evan. 
These are all the $5 level supporters. Thank you so much. I would actually clap right now because I'm so happy with these people, but I know some of you are listening on your headphones and I don't want to blow out your ears. Also, thank you, the listener. Thank you for helping to grow the show by spreading the word to friends and colleagues on social media and giving ratings on iTunes or wherever you listen. That's all for now. Now go out and test something. <laughs>